And this is probably my philosophy with everything, whether it's toughness, whether it's rebounding, what you learn through the years is if you want that, if you want that attribute, you need to recruit it. It's very difficult in some of the skill sets and intangibles. You can't make people some of these things. You can't make somebody a great rebounder. They do it. Can you move the needle with somebody and say, hey, grab another rebound and maybe give them goals in a game and then you can really try to push them towards it. But in terms of the great ones, it's innate to them. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome four-time WNBA champion head coach of the Minnesota Lynx, as well as newly appointed head coach of Team USA Women's Basketball, Cheryl Reeve. Coach Reeve is here today to discuss key elements in building both mentally and physically tough teams. And we talk cutting schemes and teaching what you know during the always fun start, sub, or sit. With members from the MBA to high school levels, we're excited to continue building a highly valuable learning and community platform called SG+. With SG+, we aim to bring the highest quality and deepest insights of the game from around the world on a weekly basis to our almost 600 video archive on SGTV, private coaching community app, and our long read Sunday morning newsletter. If you're looking to explore and learn the game on a deeper level, or just save yourself time searching the internet for the best backdoor plays in Europe, visit slappingglass.com today and see why current members are calling it an essential platform for high-level coaching anywhere. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Cheryl Reeve. Coach, thank you very much for making the time for us. We've really enjoyed talking beforehand. We can't wait to talk now that we're recording. Thrilled to be here. I got a note from somebody that said, hey, it's a pretty cool podcast. You know, do you want to join? And I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. We're talking basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Coach. We appreciate that. And we're really excited as well. Coach, we'd like to start with toughness, building tough teams, tough players, tough personalities. And I'll start with this. Pat and I were, as we're preparing for this interview, we were going back through a bunch of old articles and things like that on your career. And in one of them, a long time ago, you actually mentioned about learning toughness from your dad. And I'd love maybe if we could start there and what it was that you learned from your dad about toughness. Well, I'd say what I remember is I didn't have a choice with regard to being tough or not. Dad was pretty hard on us all. What I learned later in life is that my mom was pretty darn tough too. And I get a lot of my characteristics in that regard. And so that was kind of cool. You know, you always kind of like my dad was the one who was coaching and, you know, I came from a different generation than what we see now in terms of if I slid into second base and come up and my ankle was bothering me. And, you know, after the game, if I limped around, he's like, you know, knock it off. You know, stop with that varsity limp. You know, you got another ankle, you know. (laughs) So that was his best line was always like, you have another one, you know, hurt my finger. You got another one. Don't think about that one. You got another one. I think the physical toughness probably came from him. I think the mental toughness is what I learned a little bit later, you know, how resilient my mom has been and what she gave us in terms of being 
a mom of three kids and being a military family and being without my dad a fair amount of time. And so you don't realize that when you're growing up, you just see sports and he was the one that was sort of driving us. You know, my mom, I remember in sports, she had a different approach. It was good. It was a really good balance when my dad would really get on us. And, you know, she'd be the one that you'd go over to and she's like, you don't have to play if you don't want to play, you know, <laughs> she would kind of like, it's okay. You don't have to take that. You know, I remember one time in summer league, I dove on a loose ball. And when I dove on a loose ball, so did another opposing player. And my head just smashed into the floor and broke my nose and came home and had to go get it taken care of and all that good stuff. And she said, Cheryl, just let him have the ball, you know? <laughs> so she was very realistic, you know, in her ways. And then just from a mental resilience, I have a great appreciation for what she did for me and for our family. Coach, if we could stick on your mom for a second, when you got into coaching and hearing what you just said about your mom and sort of the balance that she provided, how did that translate into then how you viewed how to coach young people early on, especially? Well, first they didn't want me to coach. I will say that my parents did not want me to get into coaching. And my dad in particular was very, I would say strongly against it. And the reason for it was because he cared a lot about me and being able to be able to provide for myself. And he just did not feel like at that time, we're talking in the eighties at that time, the coaching profession, you know, wasn't necessarily lucrative or you couldn't, you know, envision that it going to the places that it has. And for a long time, you know, coaching the WNBA, I would be home in the off season. And my dad would say, when are you going to get a real job? You know, so he really, <laughs> it was kind of interesting all the way up until, you know, 2008 when he passed, you know, I would love for him to be around, you know, to kind of see what women's sports has become and, you know, that you can have a profession in it. And I think in terms of, you know, your question, I have had to sort of navigate learning, teaching toughness, demanding toughness, that sort of thing. You think about being a first-time head coach. I was 28 years old. That's too young. There's a lot you don't know. So, you know, you guys can imagine, you guys have been through it, you know, that you have this vision of what things should be and the way that you were coached. I was coached by the great Speedy Morris in college for my first two seasons. I don't know if you're familiar with the Philly legend, should be Hall of Famer. He was really, really tough. And that resonated with me. I like being driven. Don't tell me what I did right. I want to know what I need to do. I turned it over. You know, I want you to tell me about the turnover. And so I sort of gravitate more towards that, you know, being a driver in that way. And Speedy was that. And so that's kind of what I knew. And so when I got my first head coaching job at Indiana State in Terre Haute, Indiana, I was also a Yankee to those folks in Indiana. And so I was, you know, probably had this vision of what a player should be and what every player should be. That's the biggest mistake you make is that you think that every player should be able to do these things and coach them in a certain way and drive them. And, you know, I would say that's where I spent my first five years different than being an assistant coach. Assistant coach is easy. You know, being an assistant coach is incredibly easy. You get to be the good guy all the time. It's fun picking up the pieces and being the relationship person. And yeah, it's a grind. You know, you have a lot of work and a lot of granular things that you do, but ultimately you can put your head down on your pillow at night and sleep pretty easily. You know, you're just making suggestions. I joked with our link staff back when I was an assistant the first time with USA Basketball with Gino, and I was an assistant again for the first time in a long time. And I looked around, and I was like, this is easy. 
you know, and I went home saying, you know, Jim and Shelly, this is easy. What are you guys complaining about? <laughs> what? Cause you had to scout three games in a row. This is easy. So, but anyway, <laughs> but I think the toughness piece is something, and this is probably my philosophy with everything, whether it's toughness, whether it's rebounding, whether it's what you learn through the years is if you want that, if you want that attribute, you need to recruit it. It's very difficult in some of the skill sets and intangibles. You can't make people some of these things. You can't make somebody a great rebounder. They do it. Can you move the needle with somebody and say, hey, grab another rebound and maybe give them goals in a game and then you can really try to push them towards it. But in terms of the great ones, it's innate to them. So if you want to be a great rebounding team and recruit or scout a rebounder, otherwise you can't complain about it. If you want to have a tough team, then you should make sure that you sign or recruit tough people, tough players. And that's what I've learned through the years. And you know, I learned that you can't make them in my first head coaching job. Coach, maybe on that note, when you start to recruit or scout players, then what does toughness look like to you? You think of physical toughness, right? That's the first thing that comes to mind. When I'm watching college basketball, and you see a player that will put their body on the line in terms of getting through a screen, wanting to be first to the play, you know, that toughness, that mindset, that competitive, you know, I'm not going to let you catch the ball. I really look for that kind of determination in a player, the physical toughness that you're willing to get in there in a crowd to put your body on the line, go get a rebound, go get a loose ball, those sort of things. I think toughness also encompasses mental toughness. And that's something that's really, you know, if you're on the inside, you'll know it more when you coach a player, when you're watching what you're looking for mental toughness wise, biggest thing we look for is response to mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. What do you do? How do you act? How do you act towards your teammates? And then what play, what's subsequent to maybe the mistake that was made? Maybe it was a bad quarter. Maybe it was a bad game. What your ability to be able to collect yourself, believe in yourself, you know, have that resilience mentally to go on to the next play, next game. You know, those qualities are hard to find. When you see it, grab it. We've had a lot of fun recording a brand new segment on the show a 10 to 15 minute wrap up session where we go through our pre-podcast prep, that's a lot of peas, our favorite parts of the episode, questions we may have missed, backstories, or anything else relevant to the episode. We hope you stick around to the end and now back to our conversation. Coach, moving to the next piece you said is that maybe with toughness or rebound, you can move the needle a little bit. And when you're looking to move the needle and now teach toughness, And again, you've learned that it's not like a one size fits all. How do you go about then teaching toughness when you feel you need to move the needle for your team or a player? I've always had this, I think this space where you feel like whatever you emphasize, probably one of the greatest quotes I ever heard as a young person at a a camp, it's not what you teach, it's what you emphasize, right? If you emphasize it and it's important to you, then as a group, again, if you've done the right things and you recruited a certain way, that's when it's easy. But let's say you have maybe players that aren't elite in that area. I think, can you accomplish it in drills? We use video for everything, you know, where you could give examples. So I think talking about it, sometimes with players, I think what they would say oftentimes when you bring them in, when you want to talk about something, for example, toughness, you can't just say, we need you to be tough. You got to give examples of what behavior that you're referring to. What are they doing? What can they do, you know, in terms of valuing it or emphasizing it? Perhaps there's goals within a practice. 
and that you say to a player, you know, like a lot of teams, deflections really matter to us, but maybe it's that you give them that day that, hey, you can't let your player catch it in three instances, or you've got to get through the screen without getting hit because you're determined. Because it's not just physically tough, like, hey, you know, blow through a screen and physically knock somebody over. That's not toughness. The toughness is a determination to not let your opponent do what they want to do. Certainly, we're thinking about defensive scenarios. That probably comes to mind first. And then I think on the offensive side of it, if you reverse the mindset that you go, I want to make sure that I'm able to make every catch I want to make on offense, finishing at the rim, you know, with toughness. That's probably what we talk a lot about offensively, being able to finish through contact. So I think with players, you can't make a statement that's broad and ambiguous. I think with players, it's got to be detailed. And what exactly do you mean? And oftentimes players would say, gosh, nobody's ever asked me to do that. And I suspect that coaches have asked for them to do those things, but maybe it wasn't broken down in a way that they could understand. We give goals, we give in-game goals. We have coaches that are assigned to players if there are things that we're really looking for. And so we would give goals in a game and we give feedback throughout the game. You've gotten hit by three screens. Whatever it is that you can tangibly indicate to a player what you're after. Coach, I actually like to stick on the teaching versus demanding toughness. You kind of differentiated that a little bit earlier on. I'd actually love to just stick on that for a second. And you're talking a little bit about some of the teaching elements. I wonder about the demanding parts of it. Like, what is it as part of your program or your team that you demand toughness versus toughness you teach? I think that what becomes apparent in your teaching or in your daily work is what your non-negotiables are, right? And so we talk a lot about physical and mental toughness. That's how you went on the road. You have to be physically and mentally tough. So it's words that we hear daily, likely. And I think you get moments in the season, you know, maybe, you know, you're going to go into a hard environment, that sort of thing. I think demand has a negative connotation to it, right? Like, you know, if a player is like, we demand this from you, I think it's really more about the buy-in that you can create through daily repetition. You know, sometimes you're doing things and you're creating a habit that they don't know that you're creating. And that can come from your daily repetition of a drill that you know brings out toughness, whether you're saying it or not. You know that that's something that's lending towards accomplishing that daily goal of who you want to be as a team. And I think that's probably the thing as you've done countless practice plans. I would say sometimes when I go to a practice and I watch other teams, I sometimes walk out of a gym and I go, I don't really know what their identity is. I don't know. And so I think if the toughness component is important, you see it come through in your practice plan. You see it every day, whatever it is. And in this case, we're talking about creating an environment of what your non-negotiables are. And you can't have 20 non-negotiables. You have to have a couple. And I think rewarding also, I think that's big. Mm-hmm. Acknowledgement, you know, people want to be seen, heard, acknowledged in a positive way. So when the behavior happens, you make sure that you celebrate it much more loudly than maybe you would celebrate another success that's important. But if you're really one a champion, then everyone knows it. And then it becomes contagious. And then it not only comes from your coaching staff, but now it comes from the players where they recognize it, they see it, they feel it. And you get the recognition from everyone. And then what happens next when you get that? They want to do it again. You know, that feeling of being recognized in that way. 
Coach, you mentioned there are some drills that you'll go to that will bring it out. You don't have to go through all your drills, but I guess what is maybe one or two that you'll go to knowing that this will bring out toughness. We're going to work on toughness. I think in a, again, going to both of them end up showing whether it's defense or offense, but I think the thing that through the years brings out a real identity of who maybe it's a group together. Maybe it's a couple individuals that really start to reveal themselves in a three in a row stops scenario. And I'm really critical in what a stop looks like. You know, it can't just be somebody jacked a shot and, you know, that's one of your stops. But it also, you know, sometimes I might allow that because an offensive player needs to know that that probably wasn't the best thing. And you just gave somebody an easy win. Right. <laughs> but the three in a row stops, I think my best teams, I think about just how they embraced and loved the difficult times. Me not allowing a stop because you were late in your help. Yeah, they missed the shot, but you were late in your help. Whatever it was, and being really, really critical and then getting through that, the ups and downs. You're at two and you need a stop and somebody makes a hard shot and you go back to zero. That drill, I think, just kind of you know breeds. And you see the ones who love it. You see the ones who you know hate to lose, but there are certain behaviors. Of course, everybody will say they hate to lose, but you know, like what is your behavior in those moments to express the, you know, hate to lose? Is it, are you shitty to your teammates? That's not hate to lose. You know, hate to lose is you're doing something that's going to help your teammates be able to accomplish this together. That's probably one of my most, I think, illuminating drills that we do. We've been talking a lot about building tough players and teams and maybe ask you a question or two about building tough coaches, tough coaching staffs. So someone like yourself, you've been around for a long career and there's been a lot of ups and I'm sure a lot of downs as well. And just what you've learned from other coaches that you've been with or yourself about being tough as a, a person, as a coach to withstand a lot of the ups and downs of the coaching profession. That's a loaded one. I don't think people realize how hard this is and, and surrounding yourself with great people, just like you would want to do with your players, making sure that you're not all like-minded. That's important. I think for me, I've been fortunate. I've been a part of mostly winning seasons in my career. And so I don't do the non-winning seasons very well. For example, last year, that's not a space that I particularly like to live in. I'm probably not a great example during those seasons. And I've learned, I mean, I'm now in my 50s and you have a lot more knowledge than what you have and your response to things and you sweat the small stuff, all the stuff that the older coaches always say that you wish you could tell your younger self the things that really didn't matter that you really spent too much time on. And gosh, I think in terms of what you want from your players, you should do. And I think that means in difficult moments in a game, I think that like they're looking to you, looking to your staff. I think a collective group of people that the players can look at and have confidence in, in the most difficult moments. And I probably would be considered a demanding coach. I want the details done correctly. Because I believe that there's a fine line between winning and losing, a fine line between winning and losing possessions, fine line between winning and losing games. And so, you know, those are some of the separators. And I think I've always wanted our players to be able to look at our group and feed off of our chemistry and off of our toughness. I've got a really tough staff because they were former players that were great players, Rebecca Brunson and Katie Smith. And I had Planet Pearson last year. Those were some really tough-minded people. And, you know, I think being able to have a group that 
just like you would, you know, you want with your teammates who can recognize who needs a lift. Maybe it was somebody's scout and you feel like didn't go as well as they wanted it to recognize that they could use a pick me up and all the things that you'd want from your team that they would do for each other that creates a bond that creates a loyalty. And ultimately that kind of creates this, you know, it's not physical toughness in coaching. It's definitely more mental toughness. Coach, speaking of just mentally and physically strong people, you spent time coaching with Bill Lambeer. And I just would love to know when you were on the staff with him, what was it like when you two as coaches disagreed on something? Those were great moments. I was on staffs where maybe I could not talk the same way or be as expressive. In other words, be myself. You know, I was on staffs that that wasn't the case. And so you're tiptoeing and you're trying to find the right way to say something, et cetera. But Bill, from day one, I'll throw Rick Mahorn in there too, you know, because Rick was my counterpart as an assistant coach and we worked for Bill. And I think Bill provoked and poked and wanted conversation, wanted dialogue, wanted an argument, or I should say a debate. Those were fun times. And a lot of times it was, you know, it's not in the heat of the moment of a game. That's not where that happens. It could be practice planning. Bill had a strong idea of what he wanted. I will say that. And then I would challenge some things. I would challenge some things that he would say or do. A lot of times those were you're on the road and you're in a hotel lobby bar. You've got hours. (laughs) So we're, you know, having those conversations. And I treasured those moments. And sometimes you walk out of there, you're so mad, you know, he's so wrong. And, but it's fun. Hopefully, you know, you feel like both are growing from it. And I think that you have to have those conversations. You have to. You have to grow. You have to open your mind, you know, to different ways of doing things. And two people can be right. There's more than one way to do things. And that's probably the thing that I've learned, you know, okay, that works for Bill. When I got my position in Minnesota, there's some things I liked that we did that you keep. And there's other things you go, that's not me. I've got to do it this way. And, but you have to have those experiences of debate and conversation that I think hopefully brings out the best in you. On that topic of, debates, talking with your staff. As you've gone through your career and through a season, have you found it's important to have a sounding board or another coach maybe outside of your staff, someone that you can call because your staff is good. They all have great ideas, but you're hearing maybe the same ideas or you know know what they're going to say and that it's important to, especially when the season's in a rough part, to maybe go get an outside voice and have someone else that is maybe more objective or just a different fresh voice that maybe you need at times to snap you out of maybe a similar loop? I think that's a really fair statement. And the word objectivity is what I like. Sometimes when you're in the trenches, you get to where you can't see the forest or the trees, right? Like you have a way that, you know, like you view a player or you view a scheme. And then sometimes there's just this ability for people to, that aren't in it, aren't in every meeting and maybe watched a game and they go, why are you doing that? You know, (laughs) I like those. or Probably the thing that I get a lot of times is, again, I'm critical. So I tend more towards seeing the things that we don't do well. And sometimes I have people that will say, Cheryl, I actually think you're pretty good at this or that. It's really helpful. I think it's vital to every coach, you know, to have a variety of opinions and the ones that are on the outside. And sometimes you kind of go, well, yeah, I understand that. (laughs) But when you're on the inside, you have all the information, but it's good. It's refreshing, actually. 
you said something really interesting that me and Dan have actually been talking about, and it's how you view a player. And maybe sometimes the coach views a player a certain way, or you build up this false narrative in your head. As a coach in your experience, what would you warn against or try to even tell yourself at times to remain objective with that player? Because maybe he or she can help you, but because of your view, it's hindering your team. It's the hardest thing. You know, I'd say that all coaches would feel like if you could be better in an area, that might be it. You know, the judgmental nature. There's a reason why we feel the way that we do. We'll say that, right? Because you're in it and through the repetition of the behaviors, you might see something. But I think that understanding that giving a player or person grace, that there is the possibility of them helping you if you step outside of that feeling that you have or first, maybe they're just not good at something and it just really bothers you, but they are good at two more things that if you can just try to go, okay, they're good at these two things, keep them out of that situation that really drives you nuts as best you can or limit them. So maybe when they started, they were in that situation five times and whatever. And can you get it down to two times, three times and where you you can stomach it, but over here, they're really helpful in these one or two areas and you want to try to increase the frequency of those. And so that really for every player, I think it's our responsibility as coaches. I think that's 1000% what we should be doing every day is we all have weaknesses. We all have things we're not good at, coaches included, and you know, try to stay out of those spaces. Maybe it's a scheme and you go, yeah, but you know, the majority of the players, this is the best scheme. And for this particular player, it's not. You have to kind of weigh that. And there are times when you go, okay, well, I can't change the scheme. This is because this, our team is good at this. Just for that particular player, you hope that maybe they're not put in those situations by your opponent, you know, that you can get through it. And then at the same time, there's just some things that are, and you just have to, you know, you got to live with it and try to feature, you know, the things that a player does well. It's not easy. It's easy for me to say it. It's not easy. <laughs> We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Coach, this has been awesome so far. Thank you for all your thoughts on that toughness section. Really enjoyed that. We want to transition now to a segment on the show that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so what we'll do is we'll give you three different choices, topics here, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we will have a fun little discussion around your answer. So if you're all set, we'll dive in with this first one. We're ready. Let's do it. Okay. We're going to go on to the court with this first one, a little bit of a tactical question for you here. One of the things, especially last year that you all did well was you're a really efficient cutting team. As Pat and I kind of combed through what you did well, cutting was one of your best attributes on the offensive end. Yeah, that's actually good to hear. That's good to hear that an objective <laughs> viewpoint, maybe Synergy said this, I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but, Synergy might have hated. Yeah. Our players would be thrilled because if you hear me, cut is 
I'm obnoxious with it. So, but anyway, that's good to hear. All right, let's see. This will be a good question then for you. So when it comes to teaching a team to be efficient at cutting, start, sub, or sit these three choices as far as how you would go about creating a good cutting team. So option one is a cutting scheme. So basically just, hey, we're always going to cut like this. We're going to 45 or corner cut, whatever it is. Whatever your scheme is, really efficient on the scheme. The second option is personnel-based cutting. Types of players are going to cut over other types of players. Or the third option is teaching a full read-based cutting system. So just really teaching the players to read and not so much having a scheme around it. So start, subset, scheme, personnel, or read-based cutting. I'm going to start read-based cutting. I'm going to sit personnel. And I'll sub the scheme. The scheme's more predictable. So that's a close one. I'm definitely not a personnel. Everyone should be a cutter. (laughs) Okay. So love to then start with the read base with your start. So coming into preseason here shortly, I would imagine it's one of the more difficult things to teach players to constantly make the right reads when cutting around whatever is a post-up catch or high post catch, whatever it is. So how do you think about starting to teach the read base cutting within your system? It's really, really simple. I think it starts with, if I can't make a catch, then I'm a cutter, right? So like, if I'm supposed to swing it to a player and that player is covered, that's an automatic cut, right? So there's some basic, you know, burn actions, right? So that'd be more burn situations. And then I think in terms of the schemes of location, like you talked about the 45 or the corner cut, cutting the 45, I think is pretty underused. In our league, it's greatly used in the NBA. We'll probably see more of that. But I think featuring in terms of the way that the game is being played with slot ball screens, with nail helpers, those sort of things, those are automatic where we say, if you're standing in the slot and your player's in a nail help, and also if maybe you're not a great shooter, and that's the reason why they're overhelping, you know, that your cut could lead to an easy basket for you. But for sure, what it's going to lead to is the fill up behind, which we talk a lot about. We're going to slot cut or 45 cut. We're going to fill up behind it. And so those are things that we talk about from day one. Again, that's to me the basics of easy places to make a read, do something really simple. We will sprinkle in some actions that start with, for example, it was our 21 where we DHL with the guard. We pitch it right away to the big and that player, because they're caught oftentimes in that switch, that quick, aggressive switch. Well, that player is pitching and cutting right away. Uh, we've gotten layups, you know, a fair amount. If you look at that cutting probably in synergy, you're probably going to see that action. And if we didn't get that because it starts to get scouted or they're trying to switch it with that lower player, then you're getting the shot filling behind it. So those are areas that are like we talked about earlier in terms of what your practice plan looks like and the things that you're teaching. There's the teaching. And I would say in our case, cutting is emphasized. Because it's really about trying to get the easiest shot. A cutter, you don't cut. If you go guard to guard splits and nobody goes to the basket in a cut situation, you're not getting anything. And so I think it's much harder to guard. Those are areas that love you're being ball pressure. So there's some rules that you go, this is a no brainer. If you're being ball pressured and they're all over you on that wing and you pitch it to a post player, that's an automatic basket cut. So those are, I don't know how many different areas I just described, but as you can see, that's something I'm passionate about. Coach, the other thing that your team was really good at was the post-ups. And particularly when you go low post, how did you view cutting 
for the four perimeter players or, you know, what did you want them doing around the post-up? We had one of the all-time greats, the best center in the history of the league and Sylvia Faust. So she was a post-up. And so schemes heavy on her. Schemes were double teams. Having maybe a post player who isn't a great shooter. This is actually something that really showed itself in a great series with the LA Sparks in 2017 or 2017 WNBA championship that they really were choosing. Syl was so good. It was an MVP season for her. And it was crazy because it was for the first time, maybe Simone Augustus or Maya Moore, first time in their careers, the people were leaving them too. You know, it was constant, you know, trying to double and Sylvia Powell was that great. And so really maybe a space that we hadn't been in before where it wasn't necessary for, you know, cutting off of a double team or, you know, somebody ball pressuring and you pitch it to Sill in the post and you like a triangle look and then you basket cut. Sill's a great passer. She was a great passer. But I think that the double in the post, you know, for sure, if you've got your big lifted more into the slot area, so you have to get your four out and one in, you're feeding it. Then that big diving, because that's oftentimes the player that they would double off of. And that forces a tag down from the opposite wing. And that's what we found, you know, great success with not anything that was, you know, brand new to basketball. I think that was for us probably the most effective in a post situation with a double team of a great player. I think cutting, and like I mentioned this with Sill, Sill didn't always want to have to be one that had to handle a double team. And so you know, that space of when a double team was going to happen, if you're posting a little more in the mid post versus being kind of deeper on that block, cutting off of that, you know, the Laker cut, as I knew it, I don't know what the corner cut, really simple passes that bigs can make. And, you know, Syl was particularly good at those things. Coach, you taking over, you know, Team USA, and you've got now the best players in the world who are all used to having the ball and thinking about cutting with a team full of superstars and all used to having the ball and making plays. How do you think about that going forward? Yeah, I think one of the greatest things about USA basketball is the culture of the types of players, great players, right? They have to be really talented. But then even beyond that, the players that are on USAB recognize that what they do for their team isn't necessarily what they're going to do for USA basketball. That's a must. That's an acquired thing where it's passed on from generation to generation and it's understood. And then it isn't about you. This is about USA. And I think that my limited experience that I've had for just a year now, we had a February window where we had a a tournament in Washington, D.C., and then we had the World Cup. There's zero issue with maybe suggesting to a player that they should cut to give themselves up because there's a better shot behind them. And so I think they were eager to do those things and not caring who gets the credit. And they love sharing the load. You know, sometimes you think about the grind of a WNBA season, we have to be the best player. And those best players oftentimes want help. So with USA Basketball, you have all the help you need. And so doing simple things and cutting is something that we're going to do with USA Basketball as well. We talked a lot about burn actions. Burn means you're going to get a chance for an easy layup. So that's a little bit easier. I think the challenge is probably not so much that a player isn't willing to do it. The challenge is maybe they're not coming from it in terms of what their repetition, what their muscle memory tells them. That's probably more the challenge because you only have them for a short period of time. So you have to sort of pick and choose. Same thing for me. You know, maybe my team's great at it. And then you go to USAB and I go, I can't worry about that right now. That's like, that ranks a little bit lower. I got to do these things to be successful so that everyone can be in a good space and be successful. 
All right, coach, our last start sub sit for you. You alluded to it actually a little bit in the end of our toughness conversation. When you have a team that's failing to understand a scheme, start sub sit, the reasons why they're failing to understand or where the struggle is happening. Option one, is it too complex? Should have been, needs to be simplified. Option two, is it maybe the coach is teaching it wrong? You know, it's not the strength of the coach. Or option three, is it the scheme isn't fitting the players you have? Well, I could start all three of those. Because uh, <laughs> it certainly could be the case. But if I had to rank them, one of the first things I will say to our coaching staff, when a team repeatedly or you know, players repeatedly can't execute the scheme, I first go to, we didn't teach that right. That's on us. We've got to revisit that. So I'd probably say start. Is it too complex? Probably sub. All of them had value in being start. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's underrated. I think coaches, when a team repeatedly, I always say this, they don't do things intentionally wrong. And so when it's repeated, then I start with, it's not working. You can't just, you know, say, get back in transition. And I always go to replay my day with them. What have they heard from me? And then if I do that, then I kind of go, shit, I didn't pay any attention to that. I haven't done anything. How can they be good at it? So I think that's probably something that coaches could take away is that if it's repeated, you got to look inward on that. When it is repeated, are you finding that it's maybe uh, the teaching is in your failure to maybe explain the why, or is it maybe the drills you're choosing to help teach this scheme, this concept isn't putting them in proper game-like situations? I guess, where do you start the correction? I don't know that it's the why. I think that's usually pretty clear. It could be something simple as the way that the words that I chose, the way that I expressed it, that I thought was really obvious. So like I knew exactly what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then you also have this literal component. And I found this out coaching our eight and under team. (laughs) (laughs) This was really funny. This was really, really, if I could just a quick story. Please. And it really teaches you, right? Because no, that's literally what I said. And they did literally what I said. (laughs) In this one case, you said, fall back. The kid literally fell back, like fell, fell back. Because you said, fall back. (laughs) There's been countless things like that where I go, God, that's literally what I said. That's not their fault. I said that. So I usually find that it's not the why. Maybe it's, I didn't go detailed enough to say, okay, you're telling me not to let them go middle, right? I got to make sure that I shared with them, how do you accomplish that? So if I tell a player that, look, I need your foot, your toe is pointing at the corner of the half court and the sideline line. If I am that detailed, right? And I go, that's what I need from you. I need you to be able to place your arm on the player. If you just kind of say, don't let them go middle, keep them on the side, whatever it is, And you don't realize it, that maybe in the haste of getting through a drill or maybe a drill you've done a thousand times and you go, well, of course they know this. Those are probably places that I would start in terms of the details and they don't get it. If you just go one more or you change your words and that's what I'll do with our staff. I'll say, give me a different word because it's not working. Like I keep saying this word, it's not resonating with them. That's something that we talk about and their former players, you know, they might say, Hey, when I was playing, this is what worked for me. I like to hear this. and so. You know, those are the moments that you just kind of really search for something that can, you know, unlock what it is that you're trying to teach. I do get to a certain point where you don't keep going. 
<laughs> you go, okay, change the scheme. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not working. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Coach, when you change the word, is it something like you just start using it or let's take them aside, let's explain what I mean by this word? Yeah, I think that's always beneficial. I mean, I, certainly in the first word that you use, you were trying to do the same thing. But I think maybe just hearing something different, sometimes it's as simple as that, you know, that you go, oh, okay, yeah, no, I understand that better. You know, I can't think of any great examples right now, but each person has an interpretation of a word of what you're saying. Again, and for us, when you have a machine of a team that's been together, it's been with you for a while, those come easy. But then all of a sudden you insert some new players or you have some turnover on your team. What worked before may not work now. And so what works for this team? And well, you know, maybe changing vocabulary, you have to kind of meet them in those spaces. Coach, I know in your career, you've seen plenty of teams that let's say mid-season are failing to win. And then something happens mid-season where then they do win later on and they become a better team pushing into the playoffs. What is it about maybe those teams that you think takes them from struggling, figuring things out, and then all of a sudden something clicks and they become a better team later in the season? That could be a lot of things. It happened to us. We were not a very good team last season. We became a really good team mid-season. So like, what are factors that go into that? I would say that Patience and coaching, which doesn't come easy, but patience and coaching and kind of going, hey, this is the long haul of a season. You have to be able to have short-term memory, as we all know. And I think that players play a big part in that because usually the reason why you're not successful, one of two things, either you're just not good enough and maybe it's never going to turn. But if it turned, you were good enough. Buy-in is a big thing. And so players buying in, coaches navigating how to get the players to buy into Maybe it's schemes. Maybe you have players that were honest with you and you have that space, that vulnerable space as a coach kind of going, hey, I need to hear from you guys. Like, you know, we're trying to do this, but, you know, they're like, hey, let's do this instead. I know for me, I've always had a group of players that I call the leadership team. And you're meeting with those players. I've had as many as four. And those conversations are always about what does the team need? They're going to give you information that you just don't have, right? Because they're in the trenches with each other all the time. They see each other in all these different spaces and your time with them is limited. I think it's going to your leadership team. You know, you're expressing what you're trying to accomplish. They're telling you, and then sort of together you go, here are some solutions because you all want the same thing. You all want to be successful. Nobody wants to not be successful. And then I think ultimately you go, if you do it right, you know, you have your chemistry on your staff, that leadership team has their chemistry. It's contagious. You're hopefully that they're following your lead in terms of how you're handling, how you're treating each other in the difficult times. You know, they're very revealing times when things are difficult. And then I think you walk out of there with the knowledge of this team is going to go how you go, right? Sometimes we look at, now oh, the seventh player, ah, oh, they're not playing well. That's fine. Like I get that. But your core, that's who you have to have. If your core has the buy-in and they're doing what they're supposed to do, that's, again, contagious and will reach those other players. I suspect that's what could happen with a team that maybe starts in a place that wasn't successful, that trust ultimately probably occurred, dialogue ultimately probably occurred. That's assuming that we're not talking scheduling easier games and that sort of thing, but that's what I've seen in my career, that how you navigate the challenging times. What role does winning games also contribute to the buy-in? Or maybe, like you said, you got to be patient as a coach. You've had the conversations, but you just drop a few early on. And again, we talked about the thin line. So then that just maybe stunts the buy-in or delays the buy-in. And then teams flip because maybe you just string a couple wins. And so it starts to make sense for everyone or like, oh, it can work. 
my first season in the WNBA was in 2001. That was my first job as an assistant coach, the Charlotte Sting, coached by the great Ann Donovan. And our team started off one in 10. And it was just a, at that time, a 32 game schedule. So that's a 30 year season. And, you know, that's obviously not a great space to be in. But what happened is exactly what you're talking about. We had the recognition. There's two things. We had a mature enough group leadership wise on the team that they recognized that it came down to like, hey, you know, sometimes you're unlucky in a game. Sometimes it doesn't go your way in terms of you're doing all the right things. You're actually playing the schemes well. Maybe somebody's, you know, hits a shot. Maybe you don't get a call that was sort of crucial. The things that you can't control and you're in it, you know, you're not getting blown out. You're in it all the way. And so that recognition that five minutes to go, you know, maybe either unlucky, maybe another team did something, maybe whatever it was, but that recognition that we're not far off. What would be easy to do and what I was really impressed with with Ann Donovan was it'd be really easy to question yourself, question your schemes. And that's a dangerous time because the players are about to find out what you really believe in. If you believe in what you're doing, then stay the course. And that's what we were able to do to be able to navigate that. And then winning, when it does turn, obviously that's contagious. But if you have those moments where you have this recognition of, hey, we're not far off and we got to do a couple of things better. Let's not take the fun out of this because that's sometimes what happens. You know, you start to really change and your personalities change. And so there's a lot to manage through those difficult times. You'll probably want to hear the ending to the story of that 2001 season. <laughs> we ended up making the playoffs. We ended up in the finals. And so we went from a one in 10, one of the all-time greatest sports stories, I think, in terms of comebacks in a season with just a 32-game schedule. We made the playoffs. We beat the number one seed on their floor. We beat the number two seed on their floor, the New York Liberty, a place that teams never won. And we won the Eastern Conference Championship and went on and lost in the WNBA finals. But one of the most incredible stories and lessons learned, you know, incredible ride. Absolutely. Coach, you're off the start, sober, sit, hot seat. Thanks for playing that game with us. That was fun. That was fun. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed your answers there. Coach, we've got one final question for you before we wrap up. But before we do, really thank you for your time, for coming yeah. on today. And thank you for being so thorough and thoughtful today. Well, I appreciate you guys and anybody that's listening. They probably know the resources they have and what you guys are providing and listening. I'm a podcast listener, so I'd like to be able to find different things that I could dive into and learn something. And so there's a lot of great material that you guys are providing. So kudos to you guys and hope you guys enjoy it. And I've learned a lot in terms of just jumping on and listening to what you guys are doing. Thank you, coach. Thank you, coach. Really appreciate that. Coach, our last question that we ask all the guests is what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? No question. The answer would be easy. The best investment that I've made is in empowering my, not just players to be the great players that they are, but empowering them to use their voices for the things that matter to them. That has been incredibly rewarding. As they say, it's bigger than basketball. Empowering coaches and staff around me. I always say, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? And try to invest in them in ways that help them reach their goals. The basketball, the X and O's, it's great. It's fun. But that's sort of meaningful from a life standpoint. It's enriched my life. It's been fulfilling. And you hope in some small way that you made a difference in their lives. That's the investment for me. That's no question been the greatest. All right, Pat, what a great conversation with Coach Reeve. That was really insightful all the way through. 
just hopping in here to this post podcast. We haven't come up with the right term yet here, the wrap up party. Just real quick, I think before we got into the conversation, because I know we were just talking briefly, we circled around a lot of different topics we might get into with her. And I'm glad we got into the toughness piece because she had so much good stuff to say on it. I agree. I mean, doing our research on her, and I think that theme kept reappearing in some of the articles and some of her quotes. And then when you're an assistant coach with Bill Lambier, I would imagine toughness is going to be <laughs> yeah. talked about or part of that. So I'm really happy with what we kind of settled on for that first bucket to dive into. Absolutely. I think you and I both doing the research for her. We were really excited about the conversation because not only has she had so much success as a WNBA head coach, four-time champ, but then also being involved with Team USA and then now taking over as the head coach for Team USA. Obviously, listening to this, she is a great coach, but I think it like gives so much dynamic to the conversation going back and forth from being with the WNBA team, being with Team USA, what she's learned along the way. We watched some film of her team, looked at some of the analytics, read some of the articles. You found some old podcasts. So we had a lot of ammo to go with. And I think, too, what excited us about the conversation as well is just like what toughness looks like now and how we teach, how players continue to evolve and change with the times. You know, I think what toughness was and she alluded to this, you know, even 10 years ago, 20 years ago is much different than now. And I really liked as we get into it, you know, she said demanding versus teaching toughness where I think where we wanted to take this conversation was like that and differentiating between it, because definitely, again, years ago, I think it was much easier for coaches just to demand. So we were really looking forward to it. And for sure, me, just like what that looks like now in the modern game, you know, what is it? How do you teach it? And how do you not burn your players out by trying to teach or over demand it? Yeah. As you mentioned, I liked how she also talked about the mental piece as well. Yeah. And building both. And when we started the show, you know, she had said something about her dad. One of the articles we read a long time ago mentioned story about her dad, the toughness, but I really like how she brought her mom into it and then how that kind of linked into how she was and sort of the balance between mental and physical toughness and how she's preferred to coach and knowing some of the backstory stuff with her. I mean, obviously she's a heck of a coach and she does demand. And I think that she's found the balance and kind of, you know, like she mentioned the modern game is to still demanding. I love the differentiation between teaching versus demanding and things that you absolutely demand and things that you can teach. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing too that she mentioned that I know you and I were interested in beforehand is how much can you actually move the needle with players who just don't have it, no. whether it's toughness or the skill or whatever it is. And she was good speaking on that too. Like, you know, basically at the end of the day, you want to get great rebounding teams, go get great rebounders. Maybe you can nudge it a little bit but how she tried to do that i thought was good especially how she talked about being really specific with goals and outcomes and okay we need this from you exactly i think that was a really key takeaway for me yeah same here and, and that's what i always enjoy with these conversations and getting to like what the nuts and bolts of what it looks like it's like okay let's talk about toughness everyone wants to be tough we know why it's important to be tough but like how do you bring that to the court and really move the needle or get players to understand like what it is, how to teach. And I really enjoyed that hearing, making sure you got to emphasize and statting and really getting detailed with this is what toughness is to us. And this is what we expect. You know, you can't get hit by screens, getting through screens. And then of course too, when she's trying to some drills that for team toughness and yeah, I think the three in a row hit home with us. 
We've been in those drills before. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that from a practical standpoint, too, of like, this is what she's doing to bring out the toughness. Yeah. If anybody wants to hit us up about those drills after, email us. They are good drills. I'll say, I mean, they do build the toughness for that standpoint. Yeah. One on one stop three in a row. Uh, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. Hey, start sub sit kind of turned into that. You and I spent a good amount of time pre-show going through a bunch of different options and I was happy where we ended up. I really like both. So yeah. I just will start with the cutting. I think cutting is always a fun conversation for us because different theories and how people teach it, but her answer with the read-based stuff and how she goes about it, kind of simplifying it, I thought was really good too. And like she mentioned, you kind of end up mixing a lot of the three, you know, scheme personnel and reads together. And we get that, that, you know, those things all kind of get interchanged, but they were a good cutting team, despite, you know, them having a tougher season, they really did, you know, cut well. And so it's good to hear her thoughts on that. Yeah. Probably one of the other reoccurring themes is always teaching cutting because it is easy to notice when you're with the team and like, yeah, we don't cut at all or we can't get our guys to cut. Yeah. And I think what was it? Stan Van Gundy admitted that this is one of the weaker aspects of just his coaching that he was really struggled with how to teach it. Yeah. So anytime we can have that conversation, I think we're going to take it and we're always learning something. Anything we missed or you wanted to ask that you didn't get a chance to ask? You know, I had really one, I guess I would say, and I don't even know if it would have been a good question or worth the conversation time. I know we had talked about, or I brought up to you, like just toughness and how that relates or affects or has any role in maybe the style you play, especially from the offensive. I think is toughness more of a half card execution, right? Played in the post, play slow versus what does toughness look like if you're a up tempo, kind of want to flow, let's say more perimeter orientated. Yeah than big orientated. Just what the difference were and what it looks like. I think I kind of brought to you is one more mentally tough versus another one styles more physically tough. But that was really the only thing that I kind of had here on my notes that, you know, if we just had unlimited time, I would have brought up. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear because they play through a post quite a bit. We were talking beforehand a little bit, like does a five out offense, is it harder to be not tougher, I guess, in one sense, but if you're, you know, you got four or five guys on the perimeter and shooting more threes and jumpers, as opposed to like you mentioned, you're running stuff more through a post inside that breeds that toughness. So yeah, be an interesting conversation. Of course, I think both are tough. It's just, yeah, I think the varying degrees or what does it look like? What do you emphasize? Yeah. With any sort of offense or defensive scheme is always an interesting conversation. For sure. I had two. One was just a quick one, you know, on our research, our pre-prep she did work for a small amount of time early for the IRS. Yeah. I just wanted to see if I could tie that in somewhere. <laughs> Her takeaways from the IRS. And at one point I was going to, and then, you know, I just wonder, like, that's an interesting place to work and then go into coaching. Yeah. You know, and I think one of the articles I read, she just really knew she didn't want to do that line of work. And she did kind of touch on how her parents didn't want her to coach. And so I just wondered about her time with the IRS and how that kind of is translated into how she is as a coach. I imagine, you know, I, from talking to her, very detail-oriented and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure yeah. her personality just flowed right over, but I didn't get a chance to ask it maybe some other time. And then the other one was before we hit record, we were kind of discussing great players struggling early on in their careers. And she had mentioned just a couple of different players that she's had that have turned out to be great, but early on were not even though they were maybe high draft picks or maybe they you know came in with clout and then didn't hit the WNBA and become stars right away 
And I think that process is interesting because she said she knew that was going to be the case. Like she knew they weren't going to come in from her experience. And I always think that's interesting, whether it's a freshman in college coming in and freshman struggles or whatever it is, like players that become great and you know, they're going to be great, but coaching them through that process, I kind of was seen maybe in the toughness conversation, but that seems like a really big conversation in itself. And so, like I said, maybe we have her back. We'll ask her that. Yeah, no, I agree. Kind of that balance between managing expectations, but not taking away their confidence or what makes them obviously supremely gifted. Yeah. There's a balance for a coach. Yeah, you can see it's there. It's just going to take time and reps getting used to all that stuff. So, well, a lot of fun. Looking forward to watching them play this year and then obviously watching Team USA. So I guess we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>